0: Numbers 22, verse 37. Pick it up there with me. And let's read through those that section, if you would, please. <coughs> then Balak said to Balakim, Did I not earnestly send to you calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balakim said to Balak, Look, I've come to you. Now have I any power at all to say anything the word that God puts in my mouth that I must speak. So Balak went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Hutzot. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep, <coughs> excuse me, and he sent some to Balakim and to the princes who were with him. So it was the next day that Balak took Balachim and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Chapter twenty three verse one. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. He's kind of a Jersey kind of character. Old New Jersey, actually, I'm sorry. Balak did just as Balacham had spoken, and Balak and Balacham ordered offer offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balacham said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And God met Balakam, and, and he and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars. I have offered on each of the altars a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balakam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up his oracle, and he said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number one-fourth of Israel... Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balakam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and he said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them, and you shall see only the outer part of them. And shall not see them all, curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar, and he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord said to Balacham, and put a word I'm sorry, the Lord met Balakam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balacham, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, When has the Lord spoken? Do you really want to ask that question? Then he took up his oracle and he said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should relent. Has he said and will he not do, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord is God is with him. The shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has the strength of a wild ox. Listen to this beautiful verse. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It, must, it now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done! Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balakam, Neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. In other words, what he's saying is, If you don't have anything bad to say, don't say anything at all. So Balakam answered and he said to Balak. Did I not tell you, saying all that the Lord speaks, that I must do? Then Balak said to Balakam, Please come and I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them there for me. For Balak took him, so Balak took him, to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. And then Balakim said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Sound familiar? It's getting the routine. And Balak did as Balakham and said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. And before we go any farther, let's just pray. See this developed because I don't want to give away the ending. And I want you to be in the story with me. Pray with me, would you please? <clears throat> God, thank you for what you're going to do in this time. More than just give us knowledge or information. More than just tickle our ears with interesting tidbits. We've come to fellowship with you now, to be with you, to understand you better, to understand your call in our life, to understand your love and protection and care for us. Lord, may your word burst open and and just come alive for each of us today. May we truly get to know you. May we truly understand you. May we truly further surrender. I pray for every struggling person today that today would be the end of their struggles as they see you for who you are. And I thank you for the sweet blessing. The sweet blessing, Lord, of this time. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit and let this time be time where we are captivated in your word, driven to your feet. And Lord, that we would have so much fun surrendering to you today. If there would be any who have yet to know you, let this be the day of their salvation as we commit this time to you now. Have your way, we pray. So Lord, redeem every second. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I went any, please don't just believe me. Don't just say it must be so, because I say it so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. It's been quite a ride for Israel. And everything has been changing over the last few chapters. You see, for the first time, Israel has been on the offensive. I mean, until three chapters ago, all we've done is fought when we had to, when, when, when we've been provoked, when we've been attacked. But God promised us the land, and now the land is before us. And now here we are 40 years after the initial exodus from Egypt. And now... God has started to show that when He says, I'll fight your battles, we're starting to believe Him. And as we start to believe Him, now all of a sudden those things that seem so invincible and giant before us are going down one by one. And when that happens, (coughs) well, the enemy and the opposition seem to stand up and take notice. And this is a case like that. Now, interesting that until actually chapter 25, Israel will be completely unaware that Moab is actually there doing this. We have no record at all that while all of this is happening, that Israel is ever aware of it. So I wonder what it would be like to be Moses writing this down later, going, what? I get it. Now, this, what we're going to see in these two chapters, and <coughs> excuse me, even really developed, God willing, next week in chapter 25, is what's called the spiritual battle. Now, the moment I say that, no doubt some of you, the brain starts flying and the cog starts spinning off of the the machine and the Indians jump out of the reservation. I mean, all of a sudden, oh, spiritual warfare, man, I know what that is. And all of a sudden, because we get so many ideas about it that are so, (laughs) excuse me, cultural, but not scriptural. And just because it's Christian culture doesn't make it right. As a matter of fact, I've learned often Christian, Christian culture can be very wrong. And it's one of those, well, we do it because we've always thought that way or we've always done it this way. and oh, That doesn't work for me. How about you? That's for the lazy. That God, by the way, has a very low reputation to speak or a very low statement to make of them when he speaks in the book of Revelation. No, hear me. The Moabites, now, they're a people that are intimidated. They're on the east side of the Jordan. Israel's been promised the west, west side of the Jordan. actually, by the time we actually see the full manifestation, we've never seen more than 10%, well, a bit more than that with David, but never really the full promise of Abraham, which would go all the way to the Euphrates, which means Iran, Iraq, all the way down through the northern end of Egypt. All of that's been promised to Abraham. But now when God says, let's start with the sliver west of the Jordan River. They're on the east side looking west. And there are people that are intimidated. And why? Because the bully that beat them up got beat up by Israel. So Moab thinks, we're we're no match for these guys. But what Moab realizes is something we less realize than they do. And that is that this battle is a battle over gods and not just ideals or religions. This is not over cultures. This is not over standards. This is over whose God is the biggest. And so what happens is they go and they hire a guy that lives over 300 miles away. He lives over in Iraq. Let's put that into perspective. We don't have planes or cars or anything like that. Everything gets pulled by an animal if we're going to get there quickly. And we find out that there is a guy just beyond Luxembourg. That's how far it is in comparison to where we are today. And we go, oh, we need to get past Luxembourg for this guy that we hear that he's really kind of, you know, he's kind of Harry Potter. And if he could wave his little wand and fly through the air and do his little thing and his little dance and spray his little stuff and throw his little frog feet or whatever, maybe just then we'll be okay. And so the guy gets hired. They go with their divination fee and the the king has sent them. And he's desperate here because he knows he doesn't stand a chance unless, hear me, He doesn't stand a chance unless somehow the God of these people is away from them. Oh, what the world and enemy know that we don't. And so they go to hire the guy. And as they go to hire the guy, needless to say, there's some problems. Well, first, the guy really can't go unless God says go, and and God says you can't go. Now, understand, in the beginning, and those of you who were here last week, you know this, that the the issue was that there was a mission and a payment. The mission was curse the people. The payment was a diviner's fee. And God said no to the mission. So when the people leave and come back with a bigger fee, do you think God's going to change his mind? See, the mission never changed. Do you ever think you're really going to please God to curse anyone, nonetheless his people? There are websites today to curse God's people. We've been in church services where papers have been slipped under the door to curse us. And when we talk about this spiritual battle, you need to see how safe you are in the arms of God. Because if you don't, somehow you'll think the job is yours to fight. And can I just say that is, with all due respect, as stupid as you can be, you are in the arms of the almighty God who loves you perfectly and you're going to go fight the battle when he wants to? Either that's insanity, pride, or more than likely a recipe of both. We'll find out by next week that the truest spiritual battle is staying. Staying in his arms. Staying in his lap, staying where we belong in him. That's the greatest battle. Leering away from that is what the enemy seeks to do now. Well, first he's going to try with an off, first on offense. Now understand, <coughs> Balaam says, he goes back and says, Look at, God won't let me go. Which tells you already that his heart is duplicative. It's divided. There is a part of his mind that knows what God wants, but there's a part of his heart that really wants what's wrong. So when he does that, just like you, we'll tell people the problem is God, not us, or the mission. God won't let me go. So they go back and just say, Balaam's being stubborn. Well, They're like offering more money. So they come back with a bigger fee, with guys that are more noble and more of them, and a big retinue then shows up at the door. And he says, well, let me go check one more time, just in case God changes his mind. And God looks and he goes, look it. I'm not changing my mind about the mission, but if you really want to go, I will put a word in your mouth, but you better only say what I have to say. All right? But listen, you cannot go unless they come back here again and call to you one more time. But they don't. You see, when a heart is stubborn, For the things that are wrong and desperate for the things that are wrong, even if the mind knows what's right, it will look for a way to sort of trim and bend and twist a no into a maybe. We have children. We know how this works. And they stare at your face when you say no to figure out what kind of no it is. Is that a definitive no? Is that a, if I push hard enough, no. If I whine hard enough, if I smile hard enough, how can I turn this no into a maybe? So when God says only under these stipulations, he doesn't listen to any of the stipulations. What he hears is there's a go in there and off he goes. (coughs) Chasing after the prince that God said, don't come unless they come for you one more time. And as he goes, what we've learned, of course, is his donkey has better spiritual insight than he does. He's kicking him, smacking him, beating him around. And then when the donkey says, why are you hitting me? Don't you find the strange behavior that I'm acting like this? The fact that it starts donking, donking, (laughs) the fact that it starts speaking should be the strange enough behavior in itself. But oh no, he's so twisted by this whole thing and so drunk on this desire that he's yelling and arguing with a donkey. He's talking to him. And until this century, really, that is a very, very strange thing. Now we expect it to get up and make waffles for us. Donkey! And it was in an open field, and then it was in a narrowing area, and then it was in a place where there was no place to turn. Do you hear that progress or digress? Because that's what will happen when your heart's bent on your own destruction. It starts where it seems like your options are wide open, and then things start to narrow. When it gets to the place where the only thing left to do is to throw yourself on your face. And at that moment, and he says, if I had a sword, I would kill you to this donkey. And the donkey could have said, well, well, why don't you take the angels? And there is ninja angel, right? His sword is drawn, ready to hack Balacham into pieces. And Balaam's like, oh, okay. And down on his face he goes, which means that that angel had been there and waited for them to finish their argument before he revealed himself. <coughs> And now I wonder in your mind or my mind at a moment like that, when you realize how close you were to being torn into pieces, doesn't that etch somewhere into your heart? That moment when the car is just hanging over the cliff and there's a part of you that when you close your eyes, you can still feel that rocking. And you know if you had leaned the wrong way down, you would have gone to your doom. Hear me, beloved. Unfortunately, some of those tattoos fade. And here, for the beginning of this, he will be, and in these two chapters to some degree, he will be driven with that thought that over his shoulder at any time there's a sword that could have cut him in half. You know what's really sad? His heart will win out and he will give horrible counsel, but he can't give it in prophecy. And you know how this guy will die? by the sword. It won't be the angels. It will be Israel's. She tells you that if you really want to run to your destruction, you can. God will make it difficult. God will make it rough. But sooner or later, if you want to run there, you'll run there. But that is not what God wants. And you're like, you know, how many times do you hear the person, like, oh, I know he's not right. And I know God kind of says this, but, but this is kind of, and I'm bending and twisting. And you're like, no, you know what the scripture says. And you're like, yeah, I, don't even, I can't even think about that scripture because that clearly just denies what I want to do. And then sooner or later, you're like, you know what, I've kind of decided. And then you like marry the person and your life's miserable or you're in that horrible situation. And you're like, oh, why did God do this to me? Like it's his fault at that point. So now the king has got him and he's shown up. And of course, after all of this donkey incident, he finally shows up. And the king's like, What took you so long? And interesting, Balacham doesn't say, You should have seen the situation I just had to deal with with the donkey and the angel. Instead, he's like, Hey, I'm here now. Isn't that enough? (coughs) Excuse me. And so it begins. Now understand. What Balacham wants, what we read in the New Testament, is he wants the money, he wants the honor, he wants the fame, and he's trying to figure out how to get it and still not break God's law. And you know what's going to happen? When you start on the road to compromise, beloved, you will soon discover, sooner or later, that they don't reconcile. You can't keep compromising and somehow get God's blessing on this. I've heard someone say God does not want to bless your mess, and here He is now, only speaking what God wants to say, while Israel is deep in the valley, completely unaware that this is happening. Chapter thirty, sorry twenty-three. <coughs> they have come from the place called Kira Chutzot that seems to be their headquarters in verse thirty-nine. That's the city called, literally just means city of streets. They go and the offer because Balakim, or Balak really wants to keep his God, which by the way, note this, his name is Baal of Peor. Note that. Baal of Peor. So he takes him to the, verse 41, notice it says, he takes him to the high places of Baal. <coughs> so you can observe the extent of the people. That means he wants to see how big they are. Remember, he says, these guys, there's so many of them, they're going to take us over. And he goes, well, let me show you. The more fruitful you become, the more victorious you become, the more threat you are to the enemy. So, verse 23, chapter 23, verse 1, Balach says to Balacham now, or Balacham, I'm sorry, Balacham says to Balacham, build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. It's interesting, a side note, but a key one, that when it comes to anything other than the living God, there's always a plurality to it. Now, God will speak, by the way, when he speaks to Job in chapter 42, verse 8, and he's speaking to a guy named Eliphaz. By the way, he's, in essence, he's one of Job's friends, if you want to call him that. He's a Temanite, who God, by the way, says, your counsel has been terrible, now offer me these seven offerings. And they're very similar, but the difference is one altar. And understand, when it comes to the rest of the world, there could be a plurality of altars, and that's okay, because there's no shortage of counterfeits. So when someone says, well, we'll happily include Christianity into our group, why are you so close-minded? Because God knows there is only one way, and Jesus has made that clear. He says he is the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. That is pretty simple. And you'd say, well, why would God be so simple? So that the simple could find him. So that the simple could be saved. But here, there's several altars. It's interesting, because Jesus had taught us in Matthew 7.13, the white is the gate that leads to destruction, by the way. That tells us in 1 Timothy 4.1, that in the latter days, that even those that call themselves Christians will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines, plural, of demons. Strange doctrines is what it's called in Hebrews 13.9. It's doctrines, altars, religions. But when Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine, singular. In Ephesians 4.4, it tells us there is one God, one body, one spirit, and so you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. I love the fact that God makes it simple. And it would be surprising to me if the world wouldn't say, isn't that closed-minded? Aren't you thankful your doctor's close-minded? If you've gone to your GP because you have a problem and he knows that there's a specific drug that will cure your problem, it's an antibiotic or whatever, and he goes, yeah, you know, that seems a little close-minded. I think I should be able to smack you in the head with a five iron from my golf clubs. I think that will cure you. I I just Why be so close-minded? Why not just rub your head with peanut butter, send you out through a field of bees? I think that will cure you. And perhaps it will for Bjorn, but for the rest of us who's investing in a bee farm, in case you're wondering. Isn't one cure enough? How proud can we be to say, I'm sorry, I don't like this cure. It's not enough for me. I want options. If you were dying and humbled by it, you will gladly take whatever's before you. Balak did just as Balam had spoken. He offered a bull and a ram on each of the altars. Balaam said to Balak, Stand by the burnt offering and I will go. Notice in verse 3, it says, Perhaps the Lord will meet me. It starts with a perhaps, by the way. And so it says when he, remember, he's taking to the desolate heights of this Baal. He has a few particular locations and this is one of them. <clears throat> What's so interesting about it is in verse 3, it says it was a desolate height. The word there was the word Shafi. Can you say Shafi? Shafi means barrenness. And I find it interesting that this high place of Baal, that would mean that he oversees a territory that's supposed to be his, is barren. Don't you find that interesting? That this other God that people are looking for power, might, and fruitfulness has left below him just the land of barrenness. And that's where he is. And that's where God meets. And God will meet you at that barrenness, by the way. But he doesn't want you to stay there. So as he does in obedience, he says, all right, I've prepared the seven altars, I've, <coughs> I've offered a bowl and a ram on each of them, and the Lord put a word in his mouth, which we'll find, by the way, again and again, verse 5, 16, 24, 2. The Lord will put a, well, actually in the first two, and then 24, 2, and then beyond, by the way, the Holy Spirit will come upon him. It'll be so much more than just putting a word in his mouth, but that's how it starts. When he uses divination or sorcery, God sticks a word in his mouth. When he stops doing sorcery, the Holy Spirit will come upon him. Keynote. So we return from there. The king was standing there with his princes and he gives the first of his four major prophecies. Look at it with me. Verse 7. He took up the oracle and he said, Belak the king of Moab has brought me from Aram, the mountains of the east, saying, come curse Jacob for me and denounce Israel. Denounce is a fun word. Can you say za'am? Can you do it like this? Za'am. Come on, give it to me. Give me give something. I'll tell you what it means. It'll make sense. Damn. Damn! Beautiful. It means to foam at the mouth. How's that? Now try it one more time. Damn! That's the word that's hearing. He's like, look at This king has hired me to curse these people. This king has hired me to foam at the mouth at them. That's what he's saying. But how can I curse whom God has not cursed? Did you get that? How can I foam at the mouth whom the Lord has not foamed at the mouth? How can I denounce whom the Lord hasn't denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him. From the hills I behold him. There are people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number one-fourth of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Of course, isn't this just common? It seems like God is peeling away eternity for him to see a bit of it. And he asks, oh, that I could die the death of the righteous. And of course, you kind of get the idea. How do you die the death of the righteous if you don't live the life of one? How we want to live like hell, but be blessed in heaven. And the church is guilty of it too. I'll be honest. The church is somehow taught in mass that the world is for fun, but Jesus is for heaven. Can I just tell you, that's a flat out lie. Jesus is so much more than heaven. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life more abundant. He didn't say later. He said now. The reason I don't go out and put my thing on Whatever that thing is that goes in the club and goes on the things and the other things the other things. It's because I don't need to. I'd rather be sober because I don't want to miss a moment of this. I don't need to run a chase after women. I don't have to run and try to blow my mind out. I don't even want to run and get millions of stuff. Because I'm satisfied in Christ. And that didn't just take place. The moment I die, it took place when I died at the cross, when I gave my life to Jesus, because he came and he made his home inside of me. And if you think for a moment that what the world has to offer you is really great, and then maybe on your deathbed you'll get the blessing of the righteous, can I just say, well then go out there and find out for yourself, but the door will be open for you to come home when you really want to come home. The first of the blessings, in the simplest sense, is privilege. The first prophecy is one to say, look how privileged these people are. You know why they're privileged? Because God is among them. That's why. They're dwelling alone. Notice what he says. They dwell alone, which means they're not under subjugation. They don't have to reckon themselves. That means they're not forced in a league with other people. Like, by the way, the king of Moab is with this guy. They're uncountable like dust, which God promised Abraham, by the way, back in Genesis 13, 16. He says, if you could count the dust well, then you might as well be able to count these people and even their end. Now, do you even realize how this relates to you, Christian? Do you realize how privileged you are? Do you realize the fruitfulness God has intended for you? Do you realize the blessing that God says, listen, you dwell alone. Now, this doesn't mean you're all alone sitting in your place. I'm so alone. The idea is actually that I don't have to have somebody that's what it means the idea of dwelling alone here is not that oh these poor miserable loners the idea of it is these are people that we don't get because they don't get sucked into the rest of the world that says you gotta have a mate you got him in Jesus and if he can't be everything everything you're looking for beyond that point will never satisfy you know why? because that hole isn't it was too big for any human being to fill. And every relationship we get into, it'll either be in a state of need or a state of overflow. Decide for yourself how you want to do this. But if you come in in a state of need, you will constantly be sucking off of everybody around you. The problem is they'll do the same. So it's a bunch of empty glasses trying to suck out of a bunch of empty glasses to be full. It doesn't work, does it? Because look at these people. They dwell alone. They're so unique. They don't have to put forced in the league. I don't have to get the world to reinforce something. I don't have to get the government's funding. I don't have to get the applause of a lost world. Because God has intended greater deeds than these that last forever. And by the time that he's done with this first prophecy, he looks and he goes, whoa, man, if you could see the end of these people, not the end of them as a nation, the end of them as individuals on earth. He goes, that's what I want. That's where it really is. You understand, the devil gives you the big part up front and that makes you make payments for the rest of your life. God gives you the appetizer now. I am still feasting on heaven's appetizer. And if, it, if heaven's anything like this, and it is, I can't wait for the buffet. Do you realize the privilege you have in Christ, beloved? Because if you don't, you'll actually do the opposite of this. You'll be chasing after leagues that you don't belong in. You'll be busy trying to find somebody to complete you when God did. And you know what will happen as a result of that? There won't be the dust. You won't be as fruitful. You won't be affecting the world. Hey, the next time you blow on something and dust flies out, be reminded God wants to make you fruitful. Now, needless to say, the enemy is not going to be happy with such a promise. But God wants you fruitful and that your fruit would remain. God wants you fruitful. But Jesus says, you know how you have to be fruitful? you got to cling to me. That's what he says. Verse 11, Balak says to Balaam, what have you done? I took you to curse my enemies. This is this mission isn't working out. You've blessed them bountifully. Balakam says, hey, did I not tell you that only what the Lord put in my mouth is what I'll speak? After each time he blesses, he's going to tell them this. Back in 2238, 2312, 23, 12, 23 uh, 26, 2412, and 13, he's always going to say, I have to. And I was like, uh, You don't understand. If I say something wrong, you should see Ninja Angel waiting for me. So the block says, Well, then why don't you come to another place with me? Why would he take him to another place? Because somewhere down the line, he is hoping that his God is stronger somewhere else. Do you get it? People are always trying to find a place. Listen, Christian, because you buy into it too if you're not careful. You walk through Camden and you're like, I can feel the oppression. We can't go to that place. That's where the Satanists hang out. You don't understand. That movie's evil. Now, I'm not telling you go see the movie. What I'm telling you is there is no place where God is impotent. There is no place where God's shivering and shaking and afraid. Like I could feel the oppression. Well, then why don't you just bust out of it? Do you think that the, the gates of hell are stronger than some place on earth right now? And he told us that the gates of hell would not prevail. Hey, you're not in hell, so why would he tell us that the gates of hell would not prevail? So you could go in and say, "Who's coming out with me?" That's why. I mean, oh, I don't know. That place is closed. You don't understand. It's like hell's gates. God's like, you know what? I already bust through those gates. I broke the lock. And anytime you want to go in and take people out, be my guest. Where are those people? Because interestingly enough, the guys that are really into, quote-unquote, spiritual warfare are so busy trying to fight a demon somewhere, whatever that means, that they're actually not out there going to the gates of hell where they belong. And going, oh, that's the prostitutes. Nobody goes near those. Oh, that's the homosexual community. Nobody goes near that. Oh, that's the drug community. Nobody goes near that. Hey, let me tell you what. We all belong in hell and God took us out. Shouldn't we see how strong God's hand is already? I mean, seriously. And this king goes, all right, well, let's get you to another place. Maybe we could get you to someplace spookier. Maybe we could get you to Soho. Maybe we can get you to Hackney. Maybe we could get you to Brixton. Maybe we could get you someplace where clearly darkness reigns. You know what? Darkness is only going to reign where light isn't. Because it tells us that light came into the world and the darkness could not cut la mano, couldn't get a hand on it, could not even get a hand to take it down. Understand, darkness will never be the overcomer of light. Darkness is only the absence of it. So when someone says, Oh, that's a dark place, then let's just say it's not now. Because if you are the light of the world, how can it be dark if you're there unless you're trying to put your light under a bushel? Right? When I stumble in the darkness. That's not my song. I'm sorry. You know, there's some songs, man, where you like love it, and then there's like one line you're like, oh, you just blew the whole song. I can't sing that. How in the world can I stumble in the darkness when the light of the world lives inside of me? Man, I'm telling you what. It's a dark place? Not anymore. I don't have an overview of myself. I have, an over, I have a rightful view of the one who lives inside of me, because it says, Greater is he who was in me than he was in the world. But see, Black doesn't know that. So Black says, Well, let's get you to a second spot. But it's more than just that. Look at what happens. It says, He brought him to this place. What place is it? Well it says, listen, verse thirteen. Look at it with me. Don't lose me. Verse thirteen. Please come with me to another place from which you may see them, but you will only see the outer part of them. I'm not going to show you all of them. What are you going to see? You are going to see the outskirts. Oh, wait a minute. Outskirts. Yeah, OK. Numbers 11. One. I know what's at the outskirts. That's where the complainers are. That's where God fries the outskirts of the camp. Do you remember that? That's the ashes. And leprous Miriam just outside of it. And that stick collecting guy on the Sabbath which, for which they had to stone him. It's like, you know, the outside. That's the compromise. That's the, well, are they really saved? <coughs> well, praise God, it's not for us to know. But, you know, they're kind of in the camp still. But they're not in the center of the camp. And remember, the center of the camp is where God's tabernacle is. That's where God's tent is. Okay, let's go with the farthest from God's tent but still in the camp. Surely they're curseable, aren't they? That person's still struggling with pornography. That guy's still dealing with an addiction. That girl's still desperate for a lover, but she can't seem to make Christ it yet. But she's gonna. She's just not there yet. The person's not getting over their thing. And they're sort of one foot out of the camp and one foot into the camp. Surely they're curseable, aren't they? Surely. So we brought him to the field of Zophim, verse 14. Do you see that? Zophim, by the way, means a place of watchers. To the top of Pisgah. And that's where he builds these altars. Why is that such a big deal? Let me tell you why it's such a big deal. Because don't you remember that's where Israel was before they went into the valley? They have gotten victory, victory, victory. And then after those victories, God brought them to the place called Pisgah, which was, in essence, the place that overlooked the barrenness, which they now have overtaken. So Israel has gone into that place. Here's the interesting thing, and don't miss this, because this is so profound to me. The place that was the hill of your previous victories is a place where the enemy is trying to build an altar to curse you. So your previous victory is not where you live anymore. And he's called us to move forward. And if the best you have is yesterday's victory, well, then you're actually in a dangerous place. God intended for us to be a Christian walk, not a Christian laydown or a Christian house, a Christian monument, because that turns into a Christian memorial. What God turned intended is for this to be a movement, and for it to be a movement, we gotta move forward. Hey, praise God for those victories He's wrought in our lives in the past. And I can look back and say, thank you, now I'm gonna look ahead in confidence, but I am not gonna live there because the enemy's trying to build a camp there. And so there He is. That's where, and you're overlooking the outskirts, the, by far the most questionable within the camp. And He takes them to Pisgah. It's what's interesting is Moses doesn't know it, but he's going to be up at that place and that's where he's going to see the promised land but not get in. Hmm. Now, with that said, he says, now, stand there while I meet the Lord. Notice there's no perhaps this time. I'm confident I'm going to meet the Lord this time. And so he goes and he gives his second prophecy starting in verse 18. He took up the oracle and he said, rise up, a lock Listen to me, O son of Zippor. Hey, you're just a man. That's the idea. Son of Zippor. <clears throat> God is not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should rely on. In other words, God's not wishy-washy here. When God makes up his mind, he knows what he's doing. Has, and I love this. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Hey, you need to recognize that if God's given you a promise, he's going to fulfill it. God has promises, by the way, that are Bjorn-shaped promises I can't wear. That are Sam-shaped promises I can't wear. That are Joe-shaped promises I can't wear. They don't fit me. For good reason. Because I'm not Bjorn or Sam or Joe. Not that that's ever been in question. And if he's made those promises, will he not make them good? When he said he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, did he mean it? When he said that he'll never, ever, take his gifts or callings because his gifts and callings are irrevocable, did he mean it? When he said that he bought you by his blood, redeemed you, and then poured forth his spirit into you, and that spirit that has begun his work to conform you to Christ, will he not finish the work he's begun? And the promise he's put on your heart to touch the people in your family, to touch the people in your neighborhood, to touch the people in your classrooms and in your, and in your school around you and in your workplace, did he not mean it when he said it? Hey, do we think that we have delusions of grandeur because God said he's going to do something crazy and wild and big through us? What God are you dealing with? Well, my God actually knows what he's saying. And doesn't change his mind. Hebrews, you know what? 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because you need to know that. The, and you think, well, Jesus was way in love with me when I said yes. Now, he's the same. And Isaiah 42.9, God says, New things I declare before they spring forth. I'm going to tell you of them. Because the former things have already come to pass. And I'm still going to say new things. I'm going to bring them to pass. 46.11 of Isaiah says, Indeed, I've spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I've purposed it. it will, I will do it. And Isaiah 48, verse 3, it says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did it and it came to pass. 48, 5. Even from the beginning I've declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it, lest you should say my idols have done these things, or my carved image, my idol, or my carved image or my molded image I've commanded them. Understand God's like, look, I say these things at a time and then it's like, I have to put some time in between them so that when I bring it to pass, you realize I'm the only one who could have made it happen. But time is the rough thing, isn't it? You're like, God, I'm tired of waiting. And God's like, you need to wait. And that's where our faith gets demonstrated, gets exercised. So this is what his promise is in the second. Behold, I've received a command to bless. He is blessed and I can't reverse it because God doesn't change his mind. He has not observed the iniquity of Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Stop, wait a minute. This is the outskirts where the complainers live. This is the place where the ashes are. And this is the place where God says, I've not observed iniquity. I've not observed wickedness. How can that be? Look at the the rest of the verse. The Lord is God is with him. That's why. You need to understand my God does not impute iniquity, but rather issues forgiveness. He delights in offering mercy. The shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has the strength like a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob nor any divination. Listen, you need to know that there is no spell, no incantation, nothing that can go against God's people. Do you realize that? If all the witches in the world gathered together, bought Anton LaVey's book, lived in whoever's house, Aleister Crowley's house, listen to Led Zeppelin or whoever they wanted to, killed the chicken, spread its blood, did whatever they wanted to, and then put your name on the list, stop freaking out. Crawl into the arms of God and let God do what he does best. Listen, I had just given my life to Christ after a period of time, and I didn't know much, but I knew this much. I was raised in the occult. My mom really didn't want to die. She was dying of cancer from the day that I knew her, and she would have done anything to not die. And I remember the seances and the crystal ball that was in our house and all of the wacky stuff that took place in our house. And I remember the moment I gave my life to Christ and how God cleared up all of that. It was over. And I shared Christ with this girl in Chicago. She gave her life to Christ. <clears throat> and she started sharing Jesus with a couple of her coworkers. And one day she came back to her house and she was freaked out. Because her next door neighbor, who was apparently a very prominent witch in the neighborhood, had broken into her house. She had gone to her house and she gave me a call, this girl. And she says, I'm quite concerned. And I'm like, what's the deal? She says, I found a pair of my underpants with pepper in them underneath my welcome mat. And she knew that was the girl next door had broken in and this was a curse. She says, are they dangerous? And I said, if you put them on. True story. Go wash them. They're your underwear, do what you need to do with them. Here's the point, is that no matter how much you spin around and wama and ala kazamawala or whatever and open your book and all of this stuff and the, the Hollywood loves to make a big deal out of that, if you watch the real exorcist movie, the one biblically, she could get up, spin around, turn green, and, blah, and all that stuff. I go, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're out of here. Movie's over. Everybody doesn't even... They haven't even gotten into their popcorn yet. They're asking for their money back. They're like, was this the trailer? They're like, it's no, just biblical. You're like, oh, but what if, we, what if I don't have holy water? Or what if I don't have the... You know, I, I can't chant in Latin. Do you really think that Satan's intimidated by Latin? Oh no, a dead language. Stop! My God created him—an unknown angel, an un- unnamed angel—is going to pick him by the neck and throw him into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. He not have a name. It isn't like his name is like Hans or something like Buff. My name is Bucky. The you know whatever. It's like he's just—he's just angel. God knows what he's doing, beloved. It was the first promise, by the way, was of pro- an essence of privilege. The second one is of power. Look at this. Look at what he says. The people rise like a lioness, lifts himself up like a lion, devours its prey, drinks the blood of the slain. These guys are invincible as long as they're in the camp of the Lord. Even the fringe. as long as they stay in the camp, yes. Isaiah fifty-four seventeen says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, but stop. You say, but wait a minute. And people love to quote that verse and go, well, clearly the enemy can't kill me. If you really think that the the biggest damage the enemy could do is like stick a, you know, a javelin through you, we've got problems. When Paul ended his life and he says, like, I've fought the good fight. I've won the race. I've kept the faith. No javelin, no bullet, no bomb can blow Christ out of you. You aware of that? And then the end of it all, when this body gets cashed in, the rest of it's done anyways. I just want the dust to clear, and I'm holding on to Christ, that's it. And not just that he's holding on to me. Oh, he will be. But I just want to be like, "Oh, there you are. We're done, aren't we? Look it. When you are in the arms of God, you're invincible. Invincible. Why a lion? Well, because they tend not to bow to anything. They take down elephants for a reason. Block says, well, I don't say anything anymore. Well, can I take you to one more place? Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Perhaps it will please God for you to curse him from there. So he says, all right, well, let's go to one more place. And where does he go? He goes to Peor. Why is that important, beloved? Does that sound familiar? Peor? Because the God he serves is what? Baal of Peor. So he's now gone to his, front, into his living room. Does that make sense? He's like, clearly, if there's any place where Baal's going to be strong, wouldn't it be this? And so we see the third prophecy then. So it says then, build for me seven altars, please. And it says, but when Balaam saw, verse chapter 24, Verse 1, now look at it with me. We'll go. It'll go quickly now. He saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He's not going to do his, like, his Ouija board, Harry Potter, shake the goat's foot thing. He didn't go his other times to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Balaam raised his eyes. And interesting that every high place seems to overlook wilderness. Don't you find that strange? I don't. It's just their God. Blum raised his eyes, and he saw Israel camped according to their tribes. He saw them according to their tribes. That's what he saw at this particular position, because he saw the way that Israel was camped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now that he's not using sorcery, now the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And he picked up the oracle This is the utterance of Balaam, the son of Peor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. Don't miss that. You know who I'm seeing? You know what God you're dealing with? Not Mr. Strong. Not King Buff. Not some might. Mr. King of all God Almighty. That's who. Do you realize that's who you serve, beloved? Almighty Or is your God still some mighty? He falls down, this is him, not God, who falls down with his eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the water. Valleys, gardens, aloes, cedars. Listen to those things. Valleys that stretch out, they're spacious, like the broad place that God places us in Psalm they are They're like gardens by the riverside. It means they're strong and thriving. Because Jesus said He came that we would have life more abundantly. John 10:10. 10. 10. Like aloes that are planted by the Lord, which means that they're stable and resilient. Because surely in the time of great floods, the waters shall not come near him, says Psalm 32, 6. And like cedars by the waters, they're sturdy. He's my rock and my salvation, my defense. I shall not be moved. Spacious, strong, stable, sturdy. What's the third one? God's provision. And God, you're like, well, God, I, I have bills to pay. I need your provision. God's like, first and foremost, you need to know the provision I want to give you first and foremost is the abundance of the blessing in the Spirit. First. Otherwise, you'll try to get some stuff to try to replace that. But what's interesting is this is the place where he sees the tents Lauren, would you put up that particular thing? Remember how we looked, and those are the chapters you read by fast, where it's like, oh, there's this many people, and there's this many, and there's this many people, and there's that many. This is what they're like when they're, remember back in chapters 2 and 3, this is what they saw. Because this is what the numbers are, people notice, by their tribes. And this guy looks, and he sees this. And he says, I see God's provision." This is where we become strong. This is where we become stable. This is where we become thriving. This is where we become sturdy. This is where God puts us in a spacious world because this is what makes the difference. God in the middle of the cross. And at this point, King Balak blows a fuse. He pops a gasket and he says, I called you to curse my enemies. Look, you've bountifully blessed them these three times. Verse 11, Now therefore flee to your place. I said, listen to this verse. We're almost done. Stick with me. We're almost done. Flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, listen to this, the Lord has kept you back from honor. And all of a sudden, a new tattoo is going on, that ninja angel tattoo, on his fear of his heart. Because greater than the fear of your own destruction, often, often, can be the desperation to not be rejected. And you know what he just said? Echoing now in his head is you know, you could have been something special. You could have been something important. You could have been something great. But God kept you from it. By the time we're done, we'll realize, not today, but by next week, we'll realize this wins. As much as in his head he knows there's an angel with a sword drawn, but in his heart he does not want to be rejected. And he wants to be important, and he doesn't want to be a failure. Am I talking to anyone out there? Is there anyone who can hear that in their heart? Because you know the enemy's going to say the same thing to you. Oh, you could be something special. All you have to do is get away from the obstacle, and that's God. Verse 12, Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers? Not just to you. You're clearly not listening. But I did not even tell your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad by my own will, of my own will. What the Lord says, I must speak. Now indeed, I'm going to my people. Come, I will advise you what the people will do to your people in the latter days. In other words, he goes, You hired me. I've given you what I, what all I could do, but this one's for free. And he ends up with this last prophecy. Listen, God has promised them privilege. He has promised, people say, do you really think you're better than me? No, I, I do. I'm, if you they, they don't know Jesus, I don't think I'm better than you, but I do think I'm better off. And I have enough cheek to tell you, you could be with me. But don't for a moment try to pretend your world's as good as mine. I know better. If you don't know Jesus, I know your world. I've been there. It is not the same. And no matter what other, quote unquote, God or idol or thing you worship or seek, it will not satisfy. I've gotten them all. I can tell you, it does not satisfy. And you, have, if, if, you beloved, if you, beloved, if you know Jesus, you should know the privilege and the power and the provision that are unique to our God. Finally, as he's looking at that camp, he took up this oracle and he says to conclude, the utterance of Balacham, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Sound familiar? And then he says this, I see him. But not now. I behold him, but not near. Who is this him? A star that shall come out of Jacob. A scepter that shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. Does he know what that means? If you've ever fought, getting punched in the eye is going to leave a permanent mark. Getting smacked in the brow will take you down. It's not like he's going to slap the wrist or he's going to smack the cheek. He's going to take down Moab. Who is he talking to? The king of Moab, I remind you. Not now, not yet, but he will. And destroy the sons of tumult. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, his enemy, shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. The word for valiant is the word chayil, and it literally means to abound with life. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. And then he turns to the other enemies of Israel. He looked at Amalek. He took up the oracle and said, Amalek was the first among nations, but he'll be the last until he perishes. Then he looked at the Kenites. Who are the Kenites? Interestingly enough, Judges 1.16 tells us they are the children of Moses' father-in-law. I remind you, do you remember what Moses' father-in-law was the priest of? The Midianites. That's the people that are here. It says this, Firm is your dwelling place right now. Your nest is set on the rock, like in Gedi. Nevertheless, Chayin shall be burned. How long until Ashur, which is Assyria, carries it captive? Then he took up this oracle and he said, "Alas, Who shall live when God does this? Ship shall come off the coast of Cyprus. And he shall afflict Ashur, that's Assyria, and afflict Iber, he shall afflict Amalek until he perishes. So Valachim arose, and departed, rose and departed and returned to his place. But Lechim also went his way. Four prophecies. But once the cross happened, everything changed. And you know what it took for him to see the cross? That was when the Spirit of God came upon him. And you know what happened when the Spirit of God came upon him? Look at what he saw. He saw the cross, and at the cross, everything gets laid down and everything gets changed. You understand that what's been the same in every one of these is you know why they have privilege? Because he's in their camp. Do you know why they have power? Because I see him among them. Do you know why there's provision? Because God is in their tents. Do you know why we see this? Because the last of those four, God's presence. That's what it is. I see him not now. I see him not near. A star. One that will have dominion and victory. Beloved, please hear me. Out there is not is a dark world when you're not there, but it's not dark when you are, if you know Jesus, and He's promised you that you have the most privileged life there is. And whether nobody gives you anything here, the time of day, you have eternity. For which Belachem said, "Oh, if I could die like they die, do you even know that? Understand the difference between our." Religion, if you want to call it that. And everything else is that my God wants to be with me. He died to be with me. He paid for my sins to be with me. He took my crimes to be with me. He suffered my crimes to be with me. He took upon me, took upon himself all the things that I deserve to be with me. And he died on a cross to be with me. And he rose again to be with me. And I don't want God at a part of my camp. I want God in the center. We sing it. And when God is in the center of my camp, even every bit of this is uncurseable. No matter what the enemy wants to do. And listen, we got to stop giving him press. It's amazing how much... Hey, look, let the world promote him. That's what they do. We need to stop. Oh, the devil was on my bed and he was wailing on my head. And it was oh, all just, Oh, just the bed. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I spilled something on my shirt because it was spiritual warfare and then I walked out and then I missed the train because it was spiritual warfare and then, you know what, and then they upped the price on my oyster and that's spiritual warfare. Can I just say what the Lord really wants is you clinging to Him and then watch the victory. And what's amazing is you could have missed the train because there's going to be somebody and how many times has this happened? You sit on a new train and then somebody's crying next to you when you share Christ with them and God's like, do you really think that was Satan who did that? Please understand this. That my God wants us in this camp, deep into the camp for a reason. And that is because of him. This is all just the product of it. But they hired a guy and here's the greatest part. Listen, you have no idea how much is happening up in some rim somewhere you can't see. And the reason is because God doesn't want you to see it. Because if you cling to him, there's nothing that can be done. Could you imagine what happened? If you saw that, oh no, we better send another pastor up there to fight it. Stop. Cling to Jesus in the center of the camp and watch what happens. As we go to prayer, today, here in this room, what are you battling? What's the fight? Can you lay it before him? Can you let him take it today? Can you let him claim victory over it like he properly does? Can you surrender it to him today? Can you cling to him and say, God, it's bigger than me. And God's like, exactly. So you're going to have to cling to me through this. Have you ever been on one of those rides where you just all you could do was hold on to those things because you know it's turning and spinning and all that? And as much as you think it may be constricting, the moment you start hanging upside down, you like it because you know at that moment that means you're being held in place. You're like, I don't like this. I feel like this is kind of constricting. And then you're like, Oh, I'm glad it's there. And there are times where the Lord's just pulling you in and. That thing sticks on you. And you're like, all right, Lord, I don't know what right I'm in for, but I do know this much. You'll hold me secure because I belong to you. Do you belong to Jesus? Are you his today? The Bible says we all start out, none of us start out as his. We all start out spiritually stillborn and that's why Christ died on the cross so that your sins and my sins could be paid for. And as they're paid for, you can stand before God and Jesus says, can we swap, please? I've already taken your punishment so you don't have to. Can I actually be the Lord of your life and let you take my forgiveness, my purity? Because I've already taken your filth. And the moment you surrender to him, do you realize the Lord's like, welcome to the camp, beloved. Welcome to the family, beloved. And you're like, there are battles to be fought by the Lord's Like, yes, and I'll fight them. And you're like, yeah, but I'm tired of waiting. God says, yeah, well, then your battle's a battle of staying put in faith. My battle's to fight it when it's the right moment. And today, if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you that choice. If you have accepted Him, today is the day to celebrate that we are free in His camp. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, thank You. (coughs) Thank You for the beauty of this Word. Thank You, Lord, that no matter how much this King has tried to stop, tried to curse, tried to lay down and nail these people, and they're, they're human, they're faulty, they have all kinds of mistakes and their heart is still so messed up. And yet, Lord, you're bigger. And because you're in our midst, Lord, you continue to make us new creations. It says, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. And Lord, I just pray today for every one of us here in this room that today, Lord, you put things in proper proportion. I know, Lord, I can take my fist and hold it up to the sun and block out the sun so I can't see it, but it doesn't make my fist bigger than the sun. It just means it's closer in my eyesight and it needs to not be. And Lord, I confess to you there are times where I can take my own problems and hold them so close but they seem so big until I throw them down at your feet and they are so small. So Lord, for fear of the future, for the struggles of the present, for the battles that have yet to be fought, to the battles that are being fought right now, Lord, show us the challenge to remain. And Lord, show us that in you we have all the privilege in you Lord we have all of the power in you we have all of the provision because it's all about your presence thank you Jesus that you want to be with us may we walk out of here unfearful of the darkness may we walk out of here unintimidated by the enemy not because of who we are But rather who we are in you. And may we, Lord, not be intimidated by the girth of this world and the momentum of the things around us. But rather, Lord, as we cling to you, we see victory, because you are our victory. And having said that, right now in this room, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the Bible says if we're willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Jesus died for your sins just like mine, rose just like for, your, for you, just like he did for me. And he invites himself now to be the Lord and Savior of your life. But that takes your permission. And if that's you today, I'm going to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you just to give a confident, resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my prayer now. Let those words be mine. And here it is. God, I come to you as sinner just like everyone else. I'm not perfect. We know that. But you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that all my sin could be punished upon him. And he died the punishment I deserve. And then he rose again, just like your scripture promised, and invites himself to be the payment, ransom, savior, and lord of my life. And I say yes. I say yes to Jesus, his payment for my sin. I say yes to his resurrection and lordship over my life. And I give myself to you and say, Lord, have me now. I want to be part of you. I want to be deep in you where I belong. May all my satisfaction be found in you. My peace, my love, my joy, my hope, my life be found in you. Take me now, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.